0: Tuesday night. You've been here Monday night. and um, I want to talk to you tonight as the more mature ones in the church. May I do that? We've spent this time up to here talking about our relationship with the Lord. I want to talk with you tonight now as pastor types, parent types, elder types, board member types, Sunday school teacher types, small group people who care about the other part of the church that needs help. I want to talk with you from that perspective, is it okay if I assume a maturity level on your part tonight? Would you all say, oh yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I uh, It's a special, special moment for me tonight. I'm not going to tell you how many years ago I went to seminary, but I got acquainted with a couple who I loved being with them because they were so happy and they were so nice. And I wanted to be like that and I wasn't so nice. And I knew that who you're with, you become like. And so I always wanted to be with them. And then I heard him preach. And man, could he preach. And I thought, boy, if I could just be around him, I could be better. And I've wanted to be with them. And, and we've hardly got to be together over these 40 years. But uh, I, I can't believe they drove all the way. But Lenny and Joy, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, and now I started to lean over to Brady and say, if you want a good sermon tonight, there's a preacher here. Uh, but I, I figured he's close enough. And if Brady can't get his dad to come, you know, he can come any old time. So you're stuck. You, can't, you have just sit here tonight. But thank you, you guys. I stunned. Glad to have you. Um, we're, um, you. We got the same problem we had last night. Will the miracle worker do whatever you did last night? I'm not. It's not advancing for me. So, <clears throat> would anybody like to give a word of what you've seen the Lord do today? <laughs> And we'll start our small group meeting right now. (laughs) Let's see. Oh, you did it! There is a God. Hey, every good thing comes to the Lord. Thank you. If you'll tell me later what you did, I'd appreciate that. Because hardly anybody knows what you did. So, good. Well, tonight I want to continue on with a prayer that we didn't take a lot of time with last night. But I am begging God, believing God to help us by tomorrow night at about 8 o'clock. That there will be a dramatic core, a significant core of people who will... Make a spirit-led, holy resolve to walk as Jesus walked. Now, I got started on this last night, and we we actually worked with it a little bit. But by tomorrow night, I, I'll just say this: I am I am not talking about abnormal, extreme, weird. I'm talking about normal Christianity, biblical Christianity. Everything I talked about last night, that wasn't for the super saints. That was for everyone who's in Christ. And I'll let you be seated again tonight because we stood quite a while. But I'd like us to read this passage of Scripture again. Read with me. We know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commands. True or false? Mm-hmm. I'm going to work with that tonight. We're going to work on... This whole idea of obedience to Jesus' commands. Read. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. It's a hard verse, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in Him. Now, you won't be surprised tonight because we read this last night. But, but this is how we can know. This is how we can know we're in Christ, born again, you know, forgiven, adopted, included, redeemed. All of our words. Here's how we can know we're in Him. Here comes our celebrative assurance promise. Here it comes now. Are you Ready? it means being a Christian is so much more. So much more than many folks who sit in services on Sunday morning even understand. And it's not entirely their fault. We pastor types are very, very responsible. But here's the truth. Whoever claims to live in Christ must walk as Jesus did. Now, last night... I hinted at two ways that Jesus walked. I talked about two ways that Jesus walked. And I'd like to talk about a third way tonight... ...but I, I can't because... ...unless you'd all be willing to come back Thursday and Friday. Never mind. Okay. But um, but but last night... I, I, ...I finished up the last half hour... ...I did my best to persuade you... ...that Jesus spent crazy amounts of time alone with His Father. And if we're to walk as Jesus did... We're going to have to understand that there is a priority of relationship with God. Relationships require time. Jesus Himself, with all that He had to do, you know, His day job was pretty serious. He, you know, He had this commission with the Father that that he, he His only, you know, His task was to seek and save the lost. You know, he, he He came to save the whole world. I said last night He kind of had a Messiah complex, if you know what I mean. That was His day job. Jesus got up early, very early. Stayed up night. He stayed up to spend time with the Father. And if we're going, if we're going to walk as Jesus walked, we're going to have to understand this, not as a pressure, not as an ought to, but at the very core basis of what it means to be a Christian. This is how Jesus lived His life. And then, I talked to you about the fact that Jesus lived all day long with the Father. So, in essence, Jesus lived His whole life, if you want to describe Jesus' life, you can describe it this way, very simply, He lived a life of prayer. He spent... Times alone with the Father, then all day long, as he was doing his day job, all day long, he had constant conversation. He was abiding. He, he, he was praying without ceasing because he didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. He didn't come to conclusions independently of his Father, which is our sin. We all leave the Father out as if he's... I mean, we say he's there, but Jesus would never ignore the Father. It was always me, not me. For Jesus, it was always my Father and I. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you heard me, you've heard the Father. That's how Jesus lived his life. And I'd, I'd like tonight to talk about the fact that Jesus, like you, if you're born from above, if you're truly born again, you've received the fullness of the Spirit, all of God's Spirit. You didn't get a junior Holy Spirit or one-fourth of the Holy Spirit. He came to dwell in you, and you received the fullness of the Spirit. And, and I'd like to spend tonight showing you that everything that Jesus did, he did "...in and by the presence and power of the Spirit of His Father indwelling Him." And it's throughout the communion and the union that Jesus was like His Father. But I don't get to talk about that tonight. I want to. I really prayed about that, and I've decided I will move on. But because of that, so I've talked about three ways that Jesus lived His life. He spent all kinds of time with the Father. All day long, He was sensitive to the Father... In communication, which enabled him not only to be full of the Holy Spirit, but to be led by the Spirit. And then if we had time, I would show you how, what he did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling him. When he cast out demons, when he raised the dead, when he, when he preached, the, the Scripture articulates clearly that everything that he did that we would call powerful or holy was the fruit of His relationship with His Father by the presence of the Holy Spirit. See? But I don't have time to preach about that tonight. Unless you'll stay till 10. But never mind. Okay. So, there's three ways that Jesus walked. And if we're going to walk as He walked, we need to come to grips with this. And tonight I'm going to tell you very clearly how you can do that. Because it sounds impossible. How many are saying, this is not nuts? This is... How many are feeling... This is, this is a little bit much. I mean, this is too much. Well, tonight, I'm, I'm going to make it clear how we, can, how we can make progress in this. And incidentally, the Christian life was never intended to be lived effectively or successfully like silos in and of or by ourselves. And in much of our church process, we're still silos. Right now we're silos. You're all looking at me, but you aren't sharing together. You're not experiencing this together. It's just you by yourself. And until we understand what it means to help each other, to bear one another's burdens, to care for one another, to be coached, to be discipled, we will never be able to sustain the high levels of commitment that we very intentionally make Sunday morning after Sunday morning, Sunday night after Sunday night. We're sincere. We mean it. We promise it yet again, only by Thursday, but we drag ourselves back. But what we're missing is what we're going to talk about tonight. Okay? We're missing. So, Jesus prayed alone. He prayed all day long, which enabled him to be led by the Spirit and empowered so that his words, his acts, were truly holy. The fruit of his relationship with his Father was holiness. Just as I am holy, Jesus said. Just as I am holy, so you are to be holy in everything you do. And he had power. When Jesus, because of walking by the Spirit, was called to say, Lazarus, come forth, and he obeyed, the power of God was released, and Lazarus came forth. So I've just done one, two, three, four, five ways that Jesus walked. Tonight I want to talk to you about a sixth one. Okay? Sixth one. You're all familiar with it. Um, It's another one we talk about a lot, but we're having a hard time doing. So we'll talk about it. If we're going to walk as Jesus walked... Right? It's one of the things Jesus gave a high priority to. So, Lord, here we are. We'll all take a deep breath right now. And we want to hear you. I pray that you will work in such a way that I'm out of the way. This isn't my word. If it is me, will you make it very clear to everyone that that's hell? would you also make it clear what is the living God? We need your help, and we want your help. We wouldn't be here if we didn't want help. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So, Jesus starts the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. That's a half-hour sermon. I am with you. That's another great sermon. We're going to skip them tonight. Aren't you glad? But here's where I want to start. Jesus said in the Great Commission... He said, now, you're to make disciples of all nations. Now, when Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, the other guys, when he said, you're to make disciples of all nations, hmm, tell me if I need to keep doing that, Are we all right? When Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, Peter, James, and John heard something very specific that usually we don't hear. When Jesus said that, Peter didn't think, oh, I'll get a PowerPoint and run around the country and talk to everybody about four or five hours. That's not making disciples. They didn't hear, I'll get a book and I'll help people study it for 14 weeks. I mean, that's good and it's a start, but that's not what Peter, James, and John heard. They didn't hear, uh, get someone to raise their hand or come to an altar and then we got it done. They didn't hear that. What they heard was something like this. When Jesus said to them, Now I want you to make disciples. What they heard was, What I have done for you... I want you to do for others. This was a common concept back then. Not so common in our culture, though now we're adopting the language. Not only in the church, but outsiders are talking about disciples now. And, and they get the idea that it's, it's someone who, who looks to someone else, watches them, hangs out with them, kind of like I want to do with Lenny and Joy, and wants to hang out with them all the time so they can see them and learn from them and be coached by them so they can not only follow them, but they can actually become like them so that one day they'll reproduce them. That's what Peter, James, and John heard. See, we don't hear that. So Jesus said, make disciples. This is the imperative, what we call the Great Commission. This is the command. Make disciples of all nations. All right? Now, there's a whole bunch of little... <clears throat> I never can remember the exact English... Perfect. I need an English teacher to help me with this. I I, I forget. The, the words are too big for me. But there's a whole bunch of of, of words that, that now... I, I, I can't remember it, but anyhow, I'll I'll tell them to you and see if you can tell me what those are. Continuous, progressive, imperative, no, I can't remember what they are, but here it is. As you're going, your Bible says go. The Greek grammar is continuous. It's as you're going, wherever you are, whatever you do. It doesn't mean go one time, even to Africa. It just means, as you're going, as you're doing life, wherever you're going. So, Jesus was saying to them, now, as you're going, here's what I commission you to do. Make disciples, wherever you are. So, when you go to Walmart, you're to make disciples. When you go to school, you're to make disciples. And and people say, what? We we have to change the way we think, see? So, we have to understand that we don't go to the restaurant to eat dinner. We go to the restaurant to make disciples while we're eating dinner, right? We don't go to work to make money. We go to work to make disciples while we're making money. Amen. Amen. We're we're people with a mission. We have a purpose. We have a reason to live. Our, our co-missioner has called us. Now let me say quickly about this. My mission in life is not to make disciples. It's not my mission. My mission is to be a disciple. See, Jesus first said, come to me. Just like he said to Peter, James, John. Come to me. Hang out with me. Spend all kinds of time with me." I am called to relationship with Jesus. I'm not called first to task. I'm called to relationship. So my first call, my mission, my purpose in life is to hang out with Jesus every bit I can so that all day long I'll be thinking with him and being his disciple. My first call, my mission is to be in relationship with Jesus. But having been with him, just like Peter, James, and John were with Jesus for a period of time, about three years, after they were with him, then he said, now, I want you to go and do for others what I've done for you. So, I have a mission, it's to be with Jesus, and as I am with him and get a little more like him and grow a little bit, he says, now, I want to give you a co-mission. I want to share my mission with you. It's the same as we talked about in the meeting last night, just when he said, if you love me, I want you to care for and feed my sheep and my lambs. Same idea. He says, now, Now that you're walking with me, now I want you to go and I want you to help others. Know me well enough that they'll come to me and then you coach them in walking with me as you've learned to walk with me. See? So my co-mission, it is the great co-mission, not the great mission. Fair enough? Everybody understand? I I say this, 86.247% of making disciples of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus. See, your church, and I love your church, I'm so impressed, I'm so happy to be with you. Your church is making disciples, and you have been for a long, long time, of someone. Mm -hmm. We're all making disciples of whatever we are, for better or for worse. You're making disciples you're influencing, you're shaping. Even if you don't do it intentionally, purposefully, strategically, formally, you're still making disciples. Most of your kids, how many of you can understand me most of the time? Most of your kids probably speak the same language you speak. Now, probably none of you, the both persons in the married, both married partners, probably, probably you don't have a Ph.D. in English, both of you probably when your kids were, you know, 18 months old, you probably didn't say, now sit down and I'm going to learn you English. I mean, I'm going to help you get English. You, you, you probably didn't do that. They just were with you. They just watched you. And in the process, they, they learned a very, very difficult skill. Ask someone from China about how hard it is to learn English. Or vice versa. You disciple your children. It's not more about language. It, it's it's about values and priorities and checkbooks and calendars and actions and reactions and how you. I mean, you. We, we've all been discipled and we're all making disciples. The issue is of who. We want to make disciples of Jesus in the church, which means we're going to have to be like Jesus. And to be like Jesus, we need to hang out with him and be his disciple, thus be discipled by him. Not just in the quiet place, but all day long. See. So. As you're going, as you're going, make disciples. We don't go to ball games to watch football. We take people with us to make disciples while we're watching football. Right? Because we've got a mission. We've got a reason to live. Christians are the people with the most joy, the most purpose, the most reason to live. We are called to partner with Jesus in His great co-mission. If the world is lost around us, it's not because God is failing... And you don't expect pagans to lead themselves to Jesus. If the world around us is dark and lost, it's because somehow the church hasn't grappled with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus so that wherever we are, we're making disciples of Jesus. So we want to talk about that a bit tonight. As you're going, make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them. Now... This word, baptizing, it, it's, it's not a word usually that the people at Walmart use. Now, they probably know what it means, probably, especially in this part of the country. I mean, there's a great difference in parts of the country, you know. But but probably people at Walmart, this is enough Christianized here, that if you use the word baptism or baptizing, they probably know what you're talking about. Some places they don't. That, that's not a word they use. See. But But back in that day, when Jesus gave this, this word had very, very specific meaning. Now, for us as insiders, we know that this word is a word that we use to describe a moment of serious eternal covenant greater than human marriage. For it's an eternal marriage. Really? Right? So, in that moment of covenant making or of articulating or demonstrating a covenant, this, this, we call it baptism. It's huge for us. Right? Sort of okay. Well, back then, the word was used in the church long before Jesus even. It was used by believers, by faith people, by Hebrew people. But but it was used broader than the church. It was used in the culture, and actually, the meaning that they used it in the church was a narrow understanding of a broader concept. There's, I've read several different. Ways that they used it. But let me, let me suggest the one I think is the clearest. Back then, if someone had a piece of white cloth and they wanted that cloth to be purple, they'd go down somewhere to the market and they'd buy some a bar of purple dye. They'd melt the dye. They'd take the white cloth and they'd dip it into the purple dye. They'd pull it up. Oh, the cloth now is kind of splotchy. It's white, purple, a little lavender. And, and, but it wasn't baptized yet. So they would baptize it again. And again. Now, it's almost all purple. Job not done yet. But baptize it again. Ha! Now, it's baptized when the white, formerly white cloth is entirely and completely purple. Now, it's baptized past tense, completed. Done. Finished. Baptized. The concept was... That when you take an element and you place it in a different environment, it's baptized when it's completely like the environment into which it's been placed. So parents are always nervous about letting their kids go to someone else's house because they don't want them to be baptized. Make sense? So, Jesus says, as you're going... Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them over and over until the job's done. But we didn't get it. That. Baptizing them. And, and it's interesting what he says, baptizing them in the name. Hmm. Now, I believe in baptism and tomorrow night, we're going to talk, I'm going to tell a story if things go as I think they will I'm going to tell a story about baptizing a whole bunch of folks in one night but but baptizing them in the name it doesn't say baptizing them in water did you ever notice that? it says baptize them in the name in the name? well back then again the name a little different than the way we use the name now uh, now when someone has a baby, they name them after you know Uncle Joe or Aunt Susie or a movie star or, or just because it sounds good, you know. And I could give you a bunch of funny stories about that. One about my grandson, but I told totally I can't tell that story anymore. But anyhow, um, <coughs> but but back then, I mean, our reason for naming little babies is pretty willy-nilly. Back then, when they named them, it was on purpose because the name was a description of the character. Which means if I didn't know you back then, if I didn't know you, but someone told me your name, I would know about you. I would know what you're like because the name was a description of the character. And if in fact, if in fact your name changed, I mean your character changed, they'd change your name. So Saul became Abram, became Sarai became. So if your character because the name is a description of the person if the person changes change the name because we want the name to fit the person. So Jesus says as you're going make disciples wherever you are beyond mission, beyond purpose make disciples how baptizing them in the name oh. baptizing them in In the name of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the nature, even in the activity, but really in the nature. Baptize them in kindness, is God kind. Baptize them in grace, is God gracious. Baptize them in love. Baptize them in integrity. Baptize them in in diligence. Baptize them in everything that God is and God is good. So what that means is... To make disciples, and I call this step one for everyone, because we can all do this if we're walking with Jesus. Step one means that wherever we are, whatever we do, when we go home, when we go to school, when we go to work, when we come to church, what we do is we're to just pour, sprinkle, immerse people with kindness and goodness and gentleness, bringing them into the environment and dip them and dump them and baptize them and baptize, keep baptizing them until they're like the original name Jesus. So when will our job be done in making disciples? Well, when your disciples are perfectly like Jesus. Until then, keep on, keep on, baptize them. Not in your flesh; it'll kill us. But in Christ' likeness, holiness, godliness, gentleness, kindness, forgiveness, compassion, sensitivity, serving. Baptize them. Baptize them. Just keep dipping them. Just keep immersing them. Keep sprinkling them a little bit, a blot. Just keep. You following me? This is how we make disciples. This is step one. And, and if we're not like Jesus, they're not going to come to Him because we're His body. So, as you're going, wherever you are, just be like Jesus. That's, this is where we start to make disciples. At home? On the job? See, this is how we start. Make sense? You see, it's paramount, it's paramount that we in the church understand that at the core, we've got to help each other so know Christ that we become like Him. So that wherever we go, we're baptizing people in the name. Not with words, but with character. Holiness, godliness in the name of the Father. That's why my tribe, and I think it's yours, my tribe should be the fastest growing tribe in the world if in fact we are holy because holiness is attractive. It's Jesus. It's Christ-likeness. So as you're going, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them. Hmm. Now, This is actually the part of the Great Commission that we've done the best at. Of all the things that Jesus said in the Great Commission, of all the things teaching them, this is what we've done the best at. I mean, we build buildings to do what? What I'm doing right now. Talk, 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 talk. Yeah, Right? I mean, I went to seminary. I paid money to go to seminary so I could learn to talk, talk. And you can, We build buildings. We have PowerPoints. We have sound systems so that we can teach you. We have Sunday school classes so we can teach you. This is what we've emphasized the most. This is what we've done the best at. But now, please don't throw rocks at me when I say, even this, we haven't done very well. <laughs> this is all kinds of good news tonight. You see, because... Teaching isn't so much about the teacher as it is the student. Now, as a teacher, I must know the truth and I must articulate it. And it's better if I can articulate it in in an agreeable sort of way that's receivable, even halfway interesting. (laughs) Never mind, don't say anything. But, but, you know that. So. Teaching is terribly important, but every teacher knows that there's a time coming when the students get to take a, and the test of the teacher is if the students get it. <laughs> every once in a while, someone will come up to me after sermon and they'll say, "Pastor, that was a that was a great sermon." I say, "Oh, thank you. Uh, what part did you like?" And they say, "Uh." Well, it was good. I I, I know you told me that, but what what part was helpful to you? And they start speaking in a foreign language. Well, they start muttering and they walk up and never again do they say good sermon. Because they didn't come to church to be tested. They came to church to be fed. Mm -hmm. And, And I can guarantee, Pastor Brady, I dare you. If Pastor Brady instructs all the ushers next Sunday morning to stand at the door, with a piece of paper. When people come in, he says, now we're not going to start by worship this morning. We're not going to have even another one of my wonderful sermons until first, I want all of you to write down what you heard the Lord say to you through me last Sunday and what what you did with it. And so we'll take time right now to do that. No problem. He just wouldn't have anybody come the next week. Because we didn't sign up to be discipled. We signed up to believe some doctrines. To behave differently. And we didn't understand that Jesus didn't say, as you're going, He didn't say, make church attenders. He didn't say, make sermon listeners. He didn't say, make hand raisers. He didn't say, make singers. He, He said, make disciples. And disciples are fundamentally learners, which means, yes, they listen. But if they don't have it, the teacher has not done a good job. I talk with people regularly. They quit talking to me after a while. Because I ask them questions. And people... And <laughs> this is inside. This is preacher talk. Don't tell anybody that I told you this. But, but, but I talk with, with people and, and they... If, if I say something that's not just exactly right when I'm preaching, they've been around the church so long they can say, that wasn't right. You're off. And they have no problem telling me you need to adjust this. And so I say, well, how would you say it? Once again, "Uh, and they can't say it, but they know. See, but we haven't listened. In the church, until we have listening structures as well as telling structures, we're not yet about making disciples. Even at the most simple level of discipling, which is teaching the willing converts, we have to have listening structures. And ever since, 300 AD when we had a massive change in who the church was we had been behind we've always had one priest for every 100 or 1000 or 2000 instead of one for four or five and you can't you can't listen to a thousand at a time you can only listen to one at a time See? And most of you probably tonight in a half hour you won't remember what i've said should we test it <laughs> really i know because i do test So we're going to have to understand that in the church, if I'm going to do what Jesus told me to do in this great commission... I have to baptize people, baptize them so long, so much that they see Jesus. And when everyone else is uptight and everyone else is frustrated and everyone else is angry, they see us being full of joy and full of peace and full of hope and full of integrity. And their world is falling apart and ours should be. And they look at us and say, what in the world is different about you? And we say, do you really want to know? And then we lead them to Jesus. We wash their feet in order to wash their minds. We, we lead them to Jesus by serving and blessing, being like Jesus. We lead them to Jesus. Now, we've just, now it's just started. Now we have to teach them. Teach them. And we won't know if they've got it until at least they can say it back to us. You see, when we're sitting here, it's nice and quiet. We even sing songs so you'll we'll be all ready to hear this from out there in the war. Bullets are flying. Life is flying. It's fast. And and if you can't articulate it right right here in this nice soft space, it's not going to happen out there. We need to get the truth so clear that we can articulate it to ourselves and to the devil and to God. My God is able to deliver me. He is able. He may not, but He's able. So we need to all become preachers to ourselves. But until we get a chance to practice somewhere, until we're tested... We're not doing so well. That's why in the meetings, my job is not to teach. It's my job is to ask questions. Those of you who have been coming, <laughs> now you know you've been being tested every night. Fun, wasn't it? No. Don't tell. So, Jesus goes on. As you're going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. Huh. He had to put that in. Jesus expects us to be doers of the word. And he expects us to help our little ones, our new ones, who we have led out of darkness into the family of God. He expects us to somehow be able to coach them in such a way that they actually obey. See? Teaching them. I don't know if there's any other parents here. But all parents know that it's very simple to teach your children to obey, right? Easy. We'll take care of that tomorrow. If we're not somehow doing something in the right kind of ways to make sure that our, those we're working with are actually obeying, we're not doing what Jesus told us to do. And in the church, we don't have a process for finding out if people are obeying. We pastors find out when the couple comes in wanting a divorce and comes to us as their last hope uh, and we know well they haven't been obeying on a hundred counts and it's killed their marriage. We don't have a process to teach them to obey. Oh, we, but I don't know what you did today. I don't know what your wife thinks about you. We have a process. It's all about relationship. It's all about dialogue. See? Jesus got to be with Peter, James, and John all day long for almost three years, you know. We don't have that opportunity. But somehow, he gave the commission to folks like us. Now, this matter of obedience is really, really rugged. And, and I'm going to take a little time to talk about it. Um, because it's greatly missing for starters. I don't know you. But I do know much of the contemporary cultural church. When you start talking about obedience, they think you're talking about legalism. And so you, you even talk about obeying. And they that, that that that's not even a part of their understanding of being Christian. I I want to talk about obedience a moment, but but before I do that, let me let me um, take a moment, a little more than a moment, to, to just, th- this is sermon number three I'm starting on right now. Have you noticed I'm doing lots of sermons? <laughs> I'm only here a little while. See. So um, let me just take time to tell you about the environment that we need in the church. There needs to be an environment. An environment. Because obedience is not, is not commanded and demanded and have it work in the church. We've got to be like Jesus, who was full of grace and truth. That's how Jesus was. Now, is Jesus the ultimate judge? Is he king? Oh yes. Is judgment coming? Yes. But first, full of grace and truth. Ultimately, there will be judgment, but first grace and truth. So um, tell you a bit of my story. This is profound. I was born on a Monday. Aren't you glad to know that? But the next Sunday, I was in church. Back then, we did church. We're all a bunch of wimps now. Back then, we did church. I mean, we went about 8:30 and we stayed till about 12:30, and then we brought people over to our house for dinner. Then we went back 4:30 to get things ready, and we had juniors, you know, juniors. Then we had Sunday night service. Then we went over to the pastor's house and we had church when I was growing up. We did see. And, and I, I, I went to church every Sunday of my life. My mom saw to it. In fact, I still, you may not believe this, I have not missed being with the body of Christ one, t- one Sunday in my life. i blessed with great health, thankful for that. Uh, I've got, you know, that cross and crown stuff. I've got it goes around my neck and down around my thing. I put the company out of business because they ran out of stuff. But I've been to church every, every Sunday of my life. Aren't you impressed? And, and actually, it's not all that hot because I hated it. I had to go, <laughs> I have a choice. I had ball games. Make any I had to go to church. <laughs> and, and, and what made it really bad was I had to be good. My mom thought that I should be good during church. And I was one of those kids that have all these diseases you know, AD, RXY, DDLM. I had all those diseases. And we didn't know about it back then. We didn't have medicine. And there I was. Yeah. And, and, and our church wasn't like yours. I mean, you guys around here, you must be really rich. I mean our church, you should have seen it. I mean, we didn't have carpet like you do. We just had a hard old floor. And our chairs, huh, they were the kind that people gave to the church because they didn't want them anymore. You know how that goes? And so they were leather originally, but they were so worn out that, that the wires were sticking up and the cotton was coming out. When you sat down you kinda of had to adjust the wires, so you sat down a lot. And I mean and it was it was you had to be careful which chair you sat in and and, you know, we, we, our, our, our roof was... We had so many holes in the roof and, and the rain would come through and it'd stain it. One of the things I did to entertain myself during the sermon, man, back then sermons were long and boring. Not now. Back then they were long and boring. Everybody said amen. And so, anyhow, we, th- th- that, and, and I, would, I would count all the holes in the ceiling. Now, I will tell you, <laughs> our church was a little better than yours. You guys got a little scotch at one point. You just got a plain old flat floor. We had a slope floor in our church. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I would get in trouble almost every week because my mom expected me to be good. She was the lawmaker and the judge and the jury and the executioner. And she gave me laws, and as long as I kept within that tight spot, I was safe. I never did. I couldn't keep her laws. Every Sunday, I'd get in trouble. And you know what happened? She would judge it, determine the penalty, and execute it. But she was a super saint. She knew that you don't work on the Sabbath. And everybody knows that the Sabbath is on Sunday. And and she didn't work on Sunday. And so execution didn't happen until Monday morning. That's right. And, and the execution was, my dad, I got a haircut today, and I saw what my dad had. He had a razor strap. You all know what a razor strap? Anybody know what a razor strap? And then I got the guy who did it today. And it brought back memories. My mom used my dad's razor strap on me every Monday morning because I broke her law on Sunday. And, and what she would do, she'd make me bend over the bathtub, and then she made Tiger Woods look bad. Yeah, Boom! Off I would go. No. I mean, oh! And I got it. I hated church. Then one day, it was Sunday, and I got a bright idea. I thought, I know what I can do to keep from getting in trouble. I had this massive marbles collection. I loved to organize the sword. And so I jammed my pocket full of marbles. And, and I didn't mind. In fact, I liked the singing. But then the pastor stood up and he started preaching. Oh, it was terrible. I did all my tricks. I held my breath. I looked at my... I did everything to do, And only two minutes had gone by. But then I remember, I had my Marbles. <laughs> so, so I reached out of my pocket and I pulled out some marbles and I was looking at it and I was greedy. I, I wanted more. So I looked around. Back then we had a thing called a hymnal. You don't know what they are. We had a hymnal. And, and so I pulled it out and I put the marbles in the hymnal so I could hold it while I got some more in my pocket. So I'm leaning over to get more marbles in. Oh. Have you ever heard a bunch of marbles hit a hard floor in the middle of a sermon? It was worse than an A-bomb. It was terrible. And then, of course, all the way to the front. They the had to have a slanted floor. And then from boom, boom, boom. Oh, my heart was i was sweating. I knew. I, I knew. I had less than 12 hours left of life. I mean, I knew I was dead. I was dead. I was, dead. I was slouching down. I was dying. I was sweating. I was shaking. And, and I looked around. And do you know what happened in that church? Everybody's turned around and stared at me. As if I were a troublemaker. And I look, they're staring at me. They're staring. Everybody's staring at me. You know what the preacher did? These preachers. You know what he did? He stopped. He could have kept preaching. Oh, no. He had to stop. Leaned over the pulpit. We had pulpits back then. Leaned over the pulpit, and I was sitting right in the middle. Glared at me. Just glared at me. Little, little, just glared at me. I'm just going to hell for sure. Then just after I get killed. And so there I am. And all of a sudden, in the midst of sweating and scared and everything, I feel something right here. I look over. Huh, it's a great big hand. Well, and it's connected to a wrist, and I fall right. Oh, it's my dad. You know my dad did? My dad put his arm around me. You know what he was doing? You know what else he was doing? He was glaring right back at the preacher. <laughs> it was war. And I know what my dad was thinking. Because he told me lots of times. He was thinking, this is my son. And I love it. He's stupid. (laughs) He makes lots of mistakes. But you wait. We're going to talk. One day, he'll be okay. The jury's still out. (laughs) Grace, and we'll talk. Truth. Who's that like? I'd love to tell you more of this story. My dad wasn't even a Christian. He hated church more than I did. Which is probably why I hated church. Because we do make disciples. And I love my dad because he was full of grace and truth. And he could have told me as most anything and I'd have probably believed him. Grace. In the church, we have to have grace. now. We all probably remember a time when we were deeply tied up in what appeared to be crazy legalism. I'm not going to talk about that. But we've been so reactive to that that we've moved way over here in our attempt to understand and live and demonstrate grace that we've actually missed grace quite a bit because grace is a component of love. Grace says it doesn't make any difference how messed up you are. It doesn't make a difference if you're good or bad. I'm going to love you. You can't stop me from loving you. But love tells the truth. And if if love, if my dad, I mean, I remember the night that I, I was waiting for. Him and I was I well, I remember mostly him telling me about it. I mean, I wasn't very old. I didn't know enough that I probably shouldn't run out into the middle of the freeway with nothing on, which I did one night. Uh huh. Yeah, me. Uh huh. Same guy. And my dad chased me. You know what he did right in front of me in the freeway? Pow, pow, pow. Because he loved me. I didn't do that again. (laughs) Grace, you can't stop me from loving you. But we're going to talk. And we can't talk if we don't have grace. But if we think that grace doesn't include talking, we're terribly deceived. There's lots of disobedience in the church and we can't talk about it because we don't have the relationships caring together around Jesus. Oh, we we do. We raise our hand. We come together. But we're silos. We don't know each other in Christ. We're not sharing. We're not talking about what He's called us to. We're not talking about what He's promised. We're not talking about how we're living out. We're not talking about our struggles. So that when we fall, we fall in a silo in secret. And there's no coaching because we don't understand grace and truth and we don't understand making disciples. We're not called to make believers. We're called to make disciples. I'm not going to take time to clarify my definitions there. So as Jesus' body, a disciple-making church must be full of grace. We're going to love you. come around here. We're going to love you. And, and because we love you, we'll have relationship. And out of relationship, we'll talk about our mutual struggles. How many think the pastor can disciple everybody in the church? How many think he ought to if he was really serious about his job? No. How many relationships can you have at an intense, caring level around Jesus? Enough for your family for sure. A few others? Two, three, four, five? How many? Relationships take time. This is about relationship because we don't have shared relationship around Jesus. We can have relationships around football or relationships around cars but until we have relationships around Jesus His love for us His call to follow Him His call to be holy and we're looking at it and committed to it and then talking together about how we're doing and making progress and helping each other. See, all of us drop our marbles. Let me show you how much we drop our marbles. We're commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. In everything, give thanks. Pray without ceasing. Have you dropped your marbles yet today? Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Be nice to your wife. Let's see, Let me talk. finish up. Go to the fourth sermon for tonight. Let me talk about obedience and I'll be through. We have to understand the nature of obedience from God's perspective. From God's perspective, obedience is always about what we talked about Sunday morning, the set of the will. It's about the heart. The heart of the heart is the will. From God's point of view, obedience is about the heart. This is stated many, many times in Scripture. Here's a very familiar one. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See? We look at others' failures. God understands everything that's ever gone into them. He's thrilled that they're doing as well as they're doing because He does understand. We look at our own failures. We get down on ourselves because man looks on the outward performance. God sees the heart. See, God sees the heart. Everything that I talked about on Sunday morning and last night, we could make a holy resolve, we could set our will, enabled by grace, enabled by the Holy Spirit, we could respond by saying, yes, Lord, my will is set. God will not force your will. And if all that He will do in grace doesn't turn your will, you are lost. But He makes it possible, but not inevitable, that you can be found. That's a choice on your side to set your will. And I can set my will to obey God. If I have faith in Him that He's God not me, and that He's good and He's smart, I like to say, how would you like to have someone with your intelligence and your ability and your character running your life? Hello? When you could have Jesus, but He is God. See? So man looks at the outward appearance, God sees, I, I, I don't even judge myself, I don't know all the stuff that's gone into me. My father does. And he sees it, he understands perfectly, and he measures my responsibility, my ability to respond. He knows it. I don't. And I sure don't know yours. That's why Jesus said, "Don't you dare judge each other?" Jesus taught to the Pharisees he said, "You're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts." Jesus flips it on him. Here's the Pharisees. Trying to impress other people or trying to impress themselves. Well, I'm much better than him so they could think more highly of themselves. And Jesus looks them in the eye and says to them, you're missing it a million miles. You try to impress others and yourself. God knows your motive. He knows your commitments. He knows your will. God knows your heart. So it's not necessarily a happy thing that God knows our hearts. He does know our hearts. Very clearly, it's crystal clear, it's black and white to him. Obedience is first about the heart. No matter what God calls you to, at first it was pretty easy, you you know, whatever he called you to, but as you grow in the Lord, it gets more challenging, more difficult, and aren't you glad that your responsibility is to say, Yes, Lord, my will is set. If your will is set, you will give yourself to making progress. If you're not giving yourself to making progress, your will isn't set. I used to run track. You may not believe that. But my will was set to run a certain time. And because my will was set, I did a lot of practicing. Same way in following Jesus. This is Paul, the great apostle of grace. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. See, obedience is first about the heart. God knows. That if you set your will to do whatever He says, whatever He says, or to abstain from whatever He tells you to abstain from, He knows that if your will is set, aided by His Spirit, where your will is set, there can and there will be victory sooner or later. But it's about relationship with Him. So your will is set, you're God and I'm not. You're my King. You're good. You're smart. My faith is in you. To enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And the first will of God is repent. He commands men everywhere to repent. What does that mean? Change your mind about who your king is. When you became a Christian, if you were coached correctly, you understood that you were running the show, you were the little king, and then you found out there was a great king who wanted to be your king to save you, and you changed your mind about who would be king, and you you said, Jesus, you are king, therefore my will is set to do whatever happens in your kingdom. Don't know what that means, but you're the king and I'm not to be in your kingdom. You're the king and I'm not. How many kings are there going to be in heaven? Who knows? This is new birth language. I'm not talking about being sanctified. Everybody understand that? This is new birth language. He who does the will... and, and, And the will of God is that we are committed to obeying Him from the heart. And with help, coaching, church, Holy Spirit, Bible, we'll make progress and God will be thrilled. And we'll be thrilled and our kids will be thrilled. He, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation for those who obey Him. Would you say obedience is pretty important? Now, could you tell everyone, obedience starts in the heart. But there's no question, there must be a a deep, profound, holy resolve, I will obey God. That's what it means to be a Christian, a little Christ. Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. He was obedient all the way to death. What it means to walk as Jesus walked is to have a heart to obey. Amen? Not I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will convict you for the first time or maybe needing to restore that you will say if the scripture says if the scripture says to love your enemies it doesn't make any difference what I think the answer is yes Lord if the scripture which is the inspired word of God says to rejoice always oh Lord you serious? that's what it says okay. then will my, my will is, do I rejoice always no Am I committed to whatever it is that God means by that? Yes. Okay? We know that we've come to know Him if we obey His commands. Pretty clear, isn't it? Okay. But now, can you say, oh, I understand that means if in my heart, at the core of my heart, in my will, I am determined to obey whatever Jesus said, that's the kind of obedience God's looking for, the heart. And if it's there, I'll make progress in the performance. So I can be very secure when I read that verse. Because I know that Jesus knows that I hate it when I disobey Him. I don't do it on purpose. It's not a willful thing. My will is set. And I know that He knows my will is set. Do I fumble? Do I stumble? Do I come short? The mm-hmm. closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize how much I'm not like Him. He will punish, oh, this is Paul. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. Amazing. Amazing. See how far we've drifted in our cheap grace? I know people who think Jesus is a lousy theologian. They think Paul's better than Jesus because they reject what Jesus says clearly to support what Paul says in part of what Paul says. it's is pretty clear what Paul says. I'm going to skip by that. Let me hurry through this. I told you tonight I wanted you to see yourself as parents of the church. We've got to teach them to obey. That means we've got to say, it doesn't make any, I'm going to love you, but I have enough relationship with you that I'll know you and I'll know your successes and we'll celebrate, but I'll also know the times you drop your marbles and we'll talk. Okay, everybody tracking with me? And then, The people we work with, including ourselves, are going to drop our marbles a lot. And if we don't coach them well, they'll either get discouraged and quit, or they'll lower the standard down to something they can live by, and then they will be legalists. Okay? So when I do not walk as Jesus walked, number one, confess. Real simple. Confess. Most people think that confession equals admission. To confess your sins does not mean that you admit it. It might include it, but it does not mean that you admit that you got caught. It doesn't mean you admit that you were wrong. What it means to confess is literally to agree with God, to think about it the way God thinks, which will often require a change of mind on our part, which is repentance. So, to confess my sin means I'm aware that one way or another the Holy Spirit's helped me to see that my life is not what Jesus called me to do, And so therefore to confess it means Jesus, I want to know what you think about that. I think I know. I agree with you. If you hate sin, I hate it. Our mind, our emotions are the same. It means to come into heart unity, heart union with God about that particular behavior. And then God says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive. That's a big prerequisite. We don't just say, oh yeah, I messed up. We don't admit it. We say, God, I'm so wrong. You, you don't think about the things the way I do. I need to change my mind to think the way you do. Confession. Okay? Celebrate. You're thinking, I just dropped my marbles. You want me to celebrate? Yeah. We have to learn how to handle our own struggle if we want to help others. If we never admit that we struggle, we're being phony and hypocritical because we all struggle. I, I mean, I thought I'd be a good Christian by now. <coughs> and our lack of transparency teaches those underneath us a lot of things that we don't want to teach them. So we have to be very, very honest ourselves and in relationship. We're the first confessors. And then we learn to celebrate and we let them see us celebrate. What do you celebrate when you drop your marble? Well, first, you celebrate Jesus' presence. He doesn't leave us when we mess up. On the team, if you fumble, you get pulled out of the game or kicked off the You team. Know, on the job, if you mess up, you're, you're out. You see, Jesus doesn't leave us. He shows us our mess. He came to help us with our mess, and he stays with us as He promised he would. <laughs> because our will is set. If I had another hour, I would talk to you about what happens when he says, "Go and we say no. it's not simple as you might sound. We need to think that through, but I don't have time to talk about it. So presence. Jesus has not left me. He came. To, to help transform me, he's the one that showed me. He knew it all along before he came. After, so he hasn't celebrate. Jesus didn't leave me. We we feel because we are a little bit illegals. So we feel when we mess up, we drop our marbles. Oh, now God's so disappointed in me. Now no, no. He's the one that showed us. He's there to. Let's talk. See, let's talk. He's got his arm around us. Celebrate the pain. You're thinking, huh? You're kidding. I just dropped my marbles. You want me to celebrate? It, it, yeah, it hurts, doesn't it, when you drop your marbles? Everybody clear? It hurts. It hurts terribly. And so, the fact that it hurts is a very good sign. Once upon a time, if you had to punch someone in the nose, it didn't hurt. You were kind of proud of yourself. But now you realize Jesus called you to be a peacemaker, and you react. You don't punch people in the nose, do you? Anyway, whatever you do, whatever you do, you. when you realize the Holy Spirit shows you that you failed, you feel terrible. You hate it. Celebrate it. It proves that you're a brand new creation. You used to didn't care. Now you do. I'll tell you when to be nervous. If when the Holy Spirit shows you that what you did is not of Christ and you start making excuses or start blaming and it doesn't hurt, you're drifting from your first love, getting lukewarm at best. It needs to hurt. Just like God gave us nerves when we put our hand on a hot stove. It's good that it hurts. If it doesn't hurt we got a disease somewhere. And then pardon. Celebrate. You're saved by grace. Never were saved by how good you are. Never were saved because you don't do bad. No, 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 no. You're saved only because Jesus died for you and made it possible for you to enter in and you changed your mind about who was going to be Lord in your life. You said, Jesus, you are God. You are Lord. My will is set to let you be my King. I entered into your kingdom an act of my will because my faith is in you. Make sense? Celebrate say by grace never by your goodness or lack of badness. And then I'm not going to take time to talk about that's restitution. Almost impossible to drop your marbles and not somehow hurt someone besides Jesus and you. Not always but most of the time it hurts someone but it, I'm not going to take time to talk about that. Let's uh, Long sermon. You wake Tonight, I have one question. I talked about a whole lot of things. But one issue tonight. I'm praying that everyone here will walk out of this door having made a holy resolve for the first time or maybe a renewal of your resolve to whatever Jesus says, whatever He commands, My heart is, yes, Lord. My heart is, yes, Lord. Let me ask you tonight to raise your hand. How many of you tonight have for the first time or in a sense of renewal made a response to to God's Word Of Jesus, I don't care what you say. If you tell me to do something, my will is set to obey you. Would you just raise your hand? Thank you. Put him down. Jesus, thank you. I praise you. I ask you. I ask you. It's so easy for you. You've helped us to do this. It's easy here. But tomorrow and the weeks that come, we forget, we lose sight. We need each other's help to keep this. Thank you that you'll not only help us to remember this, but I pray you'll help us to figure out how to get together in ways that help us to keep our holy resolve to whatever the commands are of God we're determined to obey. Thank you. Well, in five minutes, for anybody that would like to, absolutely no pressure, but anybody would like to, we'll meet in the room right across the hall here, and we will practice the presence of Jesus. We will practice being discipled by Jesus. If you'd like to come, we'd love to have you. Please, no pressure. Pastor, anything else? Okay, let's all stand together.